You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everybody. Today, we have a fantastic guest on the show, Jamie. Jamie has done everything from buy and hold investing to infinite banking to investing in notes. So I'm expected to learn a ton from this show. And thank you, Jamie, for joining. Uh, Today, Jamie's going to go through his his journey, give us some scoop on the unbelievable returns you can get on investing in notes. So listen up, grab a pen and paper, because I expect this is going to be a great show. So with that, Jamie, welcome to the show, man. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Happy Absolutely. To be well, for our listeners are used to this, but um, maybe you're not. So we like to start out with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Oh, man. Um, this is uh, might sound kind of basic and boring, but I'm going to have to say vanilla. Vanilla? Uh, yeah. So have you heard that one before? <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> so w- we do get into the controversial topic, though, on toppings toppings yes or no sure i mean you know fairly basic on toppings um you know uh butterfinger i guess would spice it up a little bit something with peanut butter nuts that kind of thing Um, there you go but to me vanilla ice cream it's it's like one of those i know there are variations of of vanilla but um if it ain't broke don't fix it you know don't don't get too crazy with it um but uh yeah i'm not I'm not an, an ice cream uh, connoisseur. Yeah, so. tried and true. You can't go wrong with vanilla, Ben. Exactly. Um, so tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? So today, I, I still work part-time for the Defense Department, um, but I am more focused on uh, my mortgage note investing company. Uh, my wife and I also have a portfolio of single-family rentals that are an important piece of our our overall portfolio. Um, but right now I'm mostly focused on Labrador lending, which is our, uh, node investing company. Awesome. And where did your real estate journey begin? So I guess, so 1976, I was born. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I mean, that is true, but, um, you know, my father has been a real estate agent for many, many years. Uh, my wife and I each uh, worked for title companies back in the day after college, kind of, you know, not knowing what you want to do. Oh, here's a, here's a real job, you know? So, um, I worked for a title company for two years. Then I worked for a mortgage company for a little bit there before joining the military, whole different story. Um, so I would say kind of started back then just getting exposed to different, uh, you know, uh, parts of real estate as well as investors and, you know, coming out of college, it's like, what, what is title insurance? What is, what is, how does a mortgage actually work? You know, real basic stuff that I did kind of learn back then. Um, fast forward about uh, 10, 11 years ago, my wife and I bought our first uh, rental property, which we still own. So that's when kind of the active real estate investing began, I would say, um, December, 2009, I think it was. So we have that condo today. And, and then ever since then, we've kind of grown our single family portfolio. Uh, and like I said, now we're more into the, the note space. You have an interesting story on your first uh, uh, rental property there. That's a self-managed property, right? <laughs> yes. So there, so we have 
the self-managed property. Um, so that guy, we have the same tenant actually. Um, and he still, well, now we, because of COVID, we've kind of switched over to PayPal, but ideally he would prefer to come and drop off six months of checks twice a year, honestly. So I literally just sent him, we're, we're raising the rent at, again, but it's, we've barely raised it. You know, we've raised it maybe two times, three times total, I guess, in the, in the last 10 years, the guy pays on time every time he, if something breaks, obviously we're going to fix it, but it's, a, it's a condo, you know, the numbers aren't incredible from our standpoint, but I mean, I almost forget that I, that I own this property. So, so I, um, I, I, one of my first properties was a condo as well. It was very close to me. How did you find that property? Is it near you or it is near us? Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and honestly, that's most of our rentals are near us. Um, this one is the most near to our, our primary residence. Um, so I, I am very familiar with the area. Um, I, you know, it was off the MLS through my father as an agent, you know, uh, negotiated a good, a good deal, but not like, not some distressed proper property where we were adding value. And, um, it wasn't, uh, you know, I, I probably, I wouldn't buy it today. I mean, but, but I haven't sold it either. So <laughs> it's, you know, it's a nice, uh, staple, uh, part of our portfolio, nice stable income. And, and, uh, yeah, it's a decent, decent rental. Is there an HOA there? There is. And that's one. So they, there's a condo association, and they now do not allow um, rental properties. Uh, well, you have to be, you have to have owned the property for four years at a minimum to rent it out. So yeah, you could buy it and then live in it or keep it vacant for four years and then decide to rent it out. But um, we already had our tenant in there. So we were grandfathered in. Um, so, you know, I understand that from the, from the condo association standpoint, they're trying to keep keep the property values up. And I do review the, their um, minutes from their meetings and I'm not an active participant on the board or anything, but the, I think they do a, a good job of managing their funds and uh, planning for the future. So what's been all, your, what's been your uh, experience with the HOA specifically though? I mean, they've been responsive. I mean, it, so I, this is the only, the only property I own that's, that has an HOA and I intentionally do that. Um, so, you know, for now they're fine and they've been fine for, for a decade plus. Um, but a couple of personalities can change that, you know, the drop of a hat. So, um, some investors love investing in condos and, and, you know, you know, you can do pretty well with them. I mean, they're, they're, um, pretty maintenance free, really. You know, we're not worrying about the exterior of the building or lawn care or anything like that. So um, in general, it's, it's been a, it's, we haven't had any issues with the HOA really. So, but it's yeah. not something that I, you know, advise people to, to go do. I, I, I stay away from them. See, I go back and forth on them. Two of my properties have an HOA and they're, mm-hmm. I think like a hundred dollars a month. So okay. Not the cheapest of them, yeah. but not the most expensive. Where I have a place in Florida, it's like two twenty-five a month, and it's just yeah. for a sixteen-unit. It's it's not much, but the benefit I found with an HOA is exactly that they do all the lawn, they do all the trash. Well, mine does the trash, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and then my insurance is just significantly lower there sure. now. 
for right. newbie investors, the things you got to watch out for is do they have the reserves for new roofs? Do they have the reserves for any kind of right. uh, work that needs to be done to the roads or the sewer systems and things like that? Have you have you come up to any of those forks in the road with those pro- with that property? No, they've, they've really done a good job of, of planning and, and keeping their, their budgeting on, on point. Another thing with condos specifically um, is I've found that they don't really, they kind of have a mind of their own as far as uh, appreciation. And it, it, in some ways they can, they can spike real fast and they don't necessarily, I mean, this is a blanket statement and all real estate is local, but um, they kind of don't really follow the, the market trends in some ways. So we bought this condo and, and it was, like I said, not a bad, I mean, we didn't overpay for it, but it just, I mean, as far as property value, it did not budge whatsoever. Um, until really in the last couple of years, it started to come, come up, but I would say not, and I, I don't recommend people, you know, speculate and, and buy for appreciation as their primary goal. Um, but it can be, let's face it, people have made a lot of money from appreciation. So it's not something to ignore either. Um, I just find condos have a mind of their own as far as appreciation goes. So it's, you know, if, if you're looking for pass a passive way to go and you, Maybe, you know, and I've, I spoke with an investor a few weeks ago and he owns, I don't know, I think he, he and his partner own 30 or 40 condos and, but they are on the board and they, um, on the HOA board and they have, you know, they have some control there and some insight as to what's going on. So um, it's not really passive in that sense, but uh, it, it can be a good niche. Yeah. Um, but we did pivot away from that. And, and, um, I honestly, I didn't, um, so most of our, our Maryland, so we have the one condo and then we have uh, six, uh, townhouses in Baltimore County, Maryland. Right. And initially years ago, I didn't, I didn't actually, I just assumed, Oh, all townhouses have an HOA. So I can't buy a townhouse as a rental if I, if I want to avoid HOAs. Well, that's not true. I mean, especially in, you know, the older, townhouses some some you know in baltimore people call them row homes but um we've got uh, six townhouses in in the towson area um which is a you know a good area with like hospitals and schools and that kind of thing and none of them have an hoa so um yes it's more on us to deal with exterior issues and things like that and, and neighbors um but there's no hoa to deal with so that's that kind of was our niche as far as our Baltimore County and our, our Maryland rental properties. Yeah. One thing you said that I want to make sure that I highlight is that you don't invest for appreciation alone. That's probably my number one rule for anybody getting into early stages of real estate investing is that if it doesn't cash flow, then it doesn't make sense in my book because yeah. the way I view real estate is a place to store cash and allow it to continue to drip income to you. Uh, and if pe- people can make a ton of money speculating, people can make a ton of money buying land and getting it ready and all that sort of thing. But kind of like Warren Buffett doesn't invest in gold because it doesn't spit off a dividend or any cash flow. That's the way I view real estate as well. So yeah. I just want to make sure I highlighted that. I would have, yeah. Your totally other agree. six homes, so they're pretty close to you. How did mm-hmm. you? How did you find those? Are they all in one building? Talk to us a little bit about those. No, they're um, well. Three of them are within probably a quarter mile of each other, which is maybe a little too close together, but, <laughs> and then two are, are uh, in another part of town, but um, they were all MLS deals. So, you know, 
if you go back and say, what could we have done better? Um, you know, we could have probably, as far as our rental portfolio in, in Maryland, we probably could have hunted a little harder for off-market deals and, you know, probably, we probably overpaid a little bit for, for a couple of them from an investor standpoint, but they've all appreciated and, and they all spit off cash flow, like you said. And um, so they were all ML, MLS deals um, through my, my father as an agent. And he's a, he's a real good negotiator himself. So um, that always helps. And, you know, they're not incredible deals, but they, they do cash flow and they, they are, now we have a property manager. Uh, it's, it's mostly a little bit of monthly paperwork and there's, there's really not much for me to do. So. Yeah. And then when did you buy those? Was that the 2010 to 2014 timeframe? So right around 2014, I, I kind of was really getting tired of my full-time job and my commute. And a lot of your listeners can likely identify with that and um, started listening to a ton of bigger pockets podcasts. And um, you know, unfortunately your podcast wasn't out yet, but uh, <laughs> now I have another one to add to the list, but so started reading a ton on bigger pockets reading a lot of books and just getting that mindset piece uh, in, in, in gear and I will say to your listeners, it really is critical instead of start, you know, thinking, oh, why can't I invest in real estate or what, what are my, what are the obstacles? And those are, those are important to acknowledge, but I started to really focus. I started to say, my, my father's been a real estate agent for many years. My brother is a loan officer. I worked for a mortgage company. My wife and I each worked for title companies. Um, interest rates are pretty low, you know, it's starting to realize like, I actually have a kind of a built-in team around me and I have my own experience. Why can't I go buy some rental property? So around 2014, 2015, I actually, in the middle of 2015, I actually went part-time at my, my, uh, my job, my work. And uh, that obviously gave me a lot more time to focus on, on rental properties. And so we did do three uh, from 2015 through 2018, we basically bought, we bought two per year. So um, I, I guess it was 2015, you know, two per year. I, maybe late 2017 was the last one we purchased, but out of those six townhomes, we did three pretty major renovations and essentially following the, the Burr method um, you know, that I'm sure your listeners are familiar, familiar. Well, so talk to us about the Burr method in case they aren't, what is the, sure. Burr, what does Burr mean and why is it so powerful? So Burr is a term that was coined by uh, Brandon at bigger pockets, or at least he takes credit for it. Um, which but, he takes credit for every quote. Yeah, so exactly. Right. Um, and so it stands for buy, uh, rehab, rent, refinance and repeat. So what you're doing is you're finding a distressed property, something that's old, you know, that there, there's some, it's a motivated seller. You're finding a property at a good deal, which is harder and harder to do right now, but um, finding that, adding some value by rehabbing the property. So you're, you're put, you know, you have your systems in place and you're able to create forced appreciation. So some appreciate, most appreciation, when we say appreciation, it's usually market conditions, especially in single family, residential real estate, commercial real estate is a whole different animal where you can directly affect the property value by, you know, we don't need to go down that road, but by uh, increasing the rents yep. is, is the basic concept there. But um, with a single family rental, 
no one, the neighbors don't care what I'm charging for rent. It has nothing to do with the resale value of my property. So, but you can do some kind of forced appreciation with a single family rental by rehabbing the property, bringing it up to, up to the conditions of, you know, the rest of the neighborhood or even maybe even better. Um, and so you've just added value to that property. Now you get a tenant in place. So that's, so buy, uh, rehab and then rent is the second R rent it out. Um, and then you're going to try to refinance as soon as you can. So, um, you may buy this. We were, we were buying, we were actually buying these with cash. Some people use hard money lenders and, you know, other, other ways of, of acquiring the properties. Um, but then once you rent the, rent the property out, you can go and refinance it. Now this, this is where some people get hung up because if you didn't actually create uh, added value and you, you know, some lenders aren't going to lend to you or in, in, you know, with uh, COVID, for example, a lot of lenders were tightening their lending restrictions and, or their, their, uh, they were restricting lending and uh, it was harder to get a loan. So you could be caught in the middle of a, a rehab rent and then, Oh wait, I have a, this hard money loan that I can't refinance out of. So that refinance is normally with a traditional bank where you're getting long-term low rate financing uh, locked in, you're, you're recapitalizing. So you're getting money back from that refinance, which allows you to go out and repeat, meaning take that cash that you just got from that refinance and go buy another property. And that's the repeat, the final R in the Burr method. And that's the key there, right? Is that you're getting to use that same dollar over and over and over again. I, I tell the story of probably one of my best deals was I bought a property in between downtown Nashville and an up and coming county that was the next county over uh, in Mount Juliet, Lebanon area. And everybody had skipped over this little pocket in between. And I knew eventually that people were going to be moving there because they wanted to be closer to downtown. So I bought the property for $80,000. I paid 10% for 12 months on a loan to have access to that money. And that may seem like a lot to people that are not in the real estate investing game, but we took that $80,000. I put $20,000 into the property and then the property appreciated or was valued at 170. So basically I'm in it for a hundred. It's 170. I take 110 out. So I got paid $10,000 to do that. Right. Paid off my hard money lender. I make 450 bucks a month in, in cash flow off that property. And then I use that $110,000 to buy a duplex and then do that's, it again and do it again. Yeah, that's so fantastic. And that's super, tax, super powerful strategy yeah. if, if, uh, if you do it effectively. And that doesn't, that cash, that lump sum you got doesn't trigger any tax implications either. Really. Exactly. Until um, you go to sell the property. Uh, exactly. But yeah, the, the refinance is a, is, is, uh, has nothing to do with taxes. So, which is another benefit. So yeah, that's, that's pretty impressive. I mean, um, we've never, we've always left some money in each deal, um, which I'm okay with as well. I mean, don't get me wrong. I wouldn't turn down a deal like you just, (laughs) like you had. Um, but, uh, I'm okay with having some money in these, in these properties. It's skin in the game, right? Makes you, keeps you on your toes. Absolutely. So So you've transitioned now from uh, owning rental portfolio to investing in notes. And I'm all about this and Mm -hmm. I want to learn more about this. Um, So first of all, tell us what a note is. Okay. So a note, most people are familiar with a a mortgage on a house, right? Either 
a rental property or ideal mostly with primary residences. So the note is in its basic form, a note is a promise to pay. Um, so the note itself, then the document, the note is typically two or three pages. And it literally just says, I owe you this money that I'm going to pay according to these terms. It's a promise to pay. So mortgage notes, you know, is one, one part of the, of the note space. Um, some, some people invest in unsecured debt and um, I deal with first lien mortgage notes. That's it. So a mortgage note, the mortgage itself or the deed of trust, depending on the state um, will link that note or that promise to pay uh, to a property that's the collateral. So that's kind of the most basic form of what a note and then the mortgage is. Yep. So I, I heard this statement one time and I want to repeat it. I'll probably butcher it, but everybody's in the note space. You're either just paying the note or you're receiving the payment. And I Absolutely. equate it to a credit card. When yeah. I go to amazon.com and I order my uh, skinny jeans and ice cream scoopers or whatever I order from there, I owe the credit card money uh, for that purchase. That is a note. I agree to pay within 30 days or I pay this interest. Um, you mentioned a couple topics there and I kind of want to go through a few of them. Secured versus unsecured. Mm -hmm. Can you help our listeners understand what's the difference between the two? It's simply whether there is collateral or not. So um, a credit card is unsecured debt. So you got your ice cream and your skinny jeans and you promised to pay this credit card company back. Um, but they really don't have any collateral that they can immediately come and take if you fail to pay them back. And that's typically why credit card rates are so high because um, there's more risk there for the credit card company. When there's collateral, such as a house that's attached to this note, it backs up the promise to pay. If I don't pay my, my mortgage on my primary residence, my lender has the right to come and foreclose and, and, and take at least what they're owed um, because that note is attached to my, my home. And that is a version of secured debt. So um, there's many different niches within this note investing niche, um, but uh, we only deal with secured, secured debt. Okay. That's probably the best ex uh, explanation I've heard. So thank you for okay. that. What about, um, I hear a lot about first lien, second lien, first mm -hmm. position, junior position, all that. What, what yeah. does that mean? So most, a lot of people may be familiar with like a HELOC, for example, a home equity line of credit. That is normally a second position loan. Um, so first and second position, if you have a, a one mortgage on your, on your home that you're living in and you're paying the bank that mortgage payment every month, that's a first position or first lien uh, mortgage. Um, so then if you go and your property has appreciated and you say, you know what, I we want to put on an addition, but um, we don't have the money for it, but we have all this equity in our home. Let's go take out a second mortgage. And that can be a version that can be a HELOC. There are different versions of the second, second mortgage. Um, lately, HELOCs have been more popular. And so, um, that, that becomes a second mortgage. So normally speaking, it's, it, it has to do, it goes by the order that those documents were actually recorded. Um, but for the simplicity's sake, your first mortgage is gonna be the larger dollar amount, your primary mortgage on your home. And then any subsequent mortgage that you go out and get is going to, to be the second mortgage 
So some note investors, some invest in first and second mortgage notes. Um, some only buy second second mortgage notes. Um, as you can imagine, second lien seconds, people just call them first and seconds. Seconds are normally lower dollar uh, amounts. So the principal balance that's actually owed by the borrower is significantly lower than the first mortgage uh, in most cases. Is it fair to say a first position, the difference between a first and a second is who gets paid back first in case of default? Yes. Okay. Assuming all your ducks are in a row and, you know, um, I, there, there are always exceptions in this space. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the challenges of, of it, um, you know, understanding all the moving parts. But yes, I mean, that's the first position would get paid back first. If, let's say the, the homeowner just stops paying, they lost their job, death in the family, whatever. Um, they, they run into hardship. They stop paying both their first and their second mortgage. Either lender can actually initiate foreclosure, but let's say the first forecloses, um, the first lender, lender that's in first position forecloses and they are due their money back. So let's say the property is worth 200,000 and let's say the, you know, the, the first mortgage is 150,000, but there's a second mortgage that's 70,000. Well, that second, second lender is likely not going to get all their money back. So yep. that's also why, again, back to the credit card, it's closer to, it is secured, but it's closer to unsecured than the first position. So yep. the, the interest rate on a second is normally higher than the interest rate on a first. And that's because they're in second position. They don't have, they're not as secure. It's, yep. it's that simple. Yep. Well, where, there's, uh, where there are challenges and problems, there's usually money to be made. Mm -hmm. Before we get into some of the returns that we can expect in notes, what is the difference between performing and non-performing? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, again, again, there, there's a lot of gray in the real world, right? Um, there's sub-performing that's kind of in between. But a performing note is a note that the borrower is paying on. And you know, for most people, they, they don't even understand that that in the real world, people may not be paying their mortgage, you know? So for most people, it's, it's a mortgage note that, you know, that they're familiar with where the borrower owns a home and they're paying their lender each month. Normally speaking in, in, it's kind of a moving target as far as defining what is a performing note, but most note investors will say at least 10, maybe 12 close to on-time payments in the previous 12 months. So they're caught up. The borrowers is caught up. They they're they're not behind on their mortgage, and they've been paying almost consistently, if not fully, you know, on time for the last twelve months. Some people will will call it performing. It you know that you really do get into a lot of gray there, but that's that's my definition of a performing note. I'd say ten to twelve payments, essentially on time in the last twelve months, and the borrower is actually current. They're not behind. A non-performing note, they're not they are behind. They are not making, they may be making mortgage payments, but they may be four or five years behind. So we have a, on my website, we have a blog post about our Jacksonville deal, Jacksonville, Florida, and a couple blog posts and a, and a, and a podcast. But um, the, the, uh, when we bought that one, um, and we, we have some other examples as well, where the borrower is making payments and they're 
but they're way, they're several years behind. So they've fallen behind on their mortgage. That's considered a non-performing note. So non-performing note, you may, there may be no payments at all in the last five, 10 years. I don't, I don't deal with things like that. Um, but a non-performing note is, is not a performing note. So anything that's, that's not performing. Yeah. So, um, before we get into your Jacksonville deal, which is super inspiring, uh, tell what, why are you, why are you investing in notes? Why did you, I mean, it's, it sounds so yeah. difficult. It sounds complicated, non-performing, secured, unsecured, all this. <laughs> why did you get into the note space? So I think I really like the fact that you can be a note investor from anywhere. Um, you can do it. If you have an internet connection and a cell phone, you can be a note investor. Uh, I would pretty quickly, I'd recommend you add, add some systems and, you know, not just go off of, uh, you know, your iPad and travel the world. And, um, but you can do it from anywhere and you can scale fairly easily. So you can get into the note space. A lot of the, the first lien notes that we buy are between 20 and $60,000 principal balance. So that's not, you know, a million dollar property that I got to go out and buy, you know, it's, it's easier. The, the barrier to entry is pretty low. Um, I like that there's so many niches within this space and that you can kind of find, find your own niche where you can become an expert in that particular area. And um, yeah. And, and, you know, as far as performing notes, they can be pretty passive. Um, we own our, our rental portfolio. That's been good. And it, you know, it's, it is actually growing, which is a good thing, but um, notes have several advantages over, you know, hard real estate. And um, I have another blog post comparing those two as well, but yeah, um, yeah the, the kind of, I don't want to say it's passive. People like to throw that term around, um, especially if you're buying non-performing notes, it's anything but passive, but you, but you're, I'm not out swinging a hammer. I mean, I'm, I'm at my desk making phone calls, emails, everything can be done from the computer and you can, you can scale pretty easily. So. Yeah, I think I, the best analogy I can give is you are the bank at that point. You are Absolutely. lending someone money to buy a house. And if yep. they have problems with the house, whether it be toilets, termites, anything like that, then that is their issue. I've never had the bank come to me and say, hey, I want to, I need to come fix your toilet or I, I want to do a home inspection after you bought it. I mean, once the money is lent, then you are just the bank and you receive payments. And if they stop paying, then you can go through legal proceedings to get the house back. So there's yes. a lot of great returns that can happen, both on the performing side and non-performing. I think your Jacksonville deal, though, kind of gives the best of both worlds. Can you talk to us a little bit about that deal specifically? Sure. Um, you know, for more detail, go check out my <laughs> my website. But it was a it was a good one. We um, we bought this note in uh, I think it was uh, maybe April 2019. That was uh, on a a property in Jacksonville, Florida, and um, it was non-performing. So they were about two, a little over two years behind on their mortgage payments. And um, turns out that the homeowner, the actual borrower who, you know, like you said, we became the bank. So now this, the, this homeowner owes us this money. So we bought, we bought the note for 46,000. She actually owed principal balance was over 93,000 and, and, total with all the arrears and interest and everything she legally still owed was uh, 125,000, something like that. I'd have to go back and double check. So I'm going to stop <laughs> you real quick. You yeah. bought that for 46,000 
Yes. To a piece of property that owed you now 126,000 essentially. Yes. I mean, that's uh, huge right there. You're buying now on 50 cents on the dollar. That's huge. And it actually, the note space is fairly small. And I found out after the fact that I could have paid, paid 40,000 for it, but <laughs> semantics. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's a rounding error. Who needs $6,000, but no, um, <laughs> Yes. I mean, now I will say before people get too excited, the, the, a lot of investors do not really look too closely at anything above the principal balance or above the property value. So although technically this borrower did owe us, you know, we'll say 125,000 legally, it's very, it's sometimes you, you really cannot bank on, on getting that money back. Uh, really. I mean, you can't bank on any of it, but you definitely should not bank on anything over the principal balance. Um, that's, that's a whole different, different animal, but yeah. And on paper, this property, now another risk with note investing, like you said, you're, you're the lender, you're not, you're not inside the property. One risk with note investing is you, when you buy a note, you normally don't get access to that property. You, you can, if it's through the seller, um, but you're not calling up the borrower who lives in the home and saying, Hey, let me get into your, your house because I'm trying to buy your mortgage note, you know, it just doesn't work like that. So you really are taking a little bit of a risk and you don't know what the inside of that property looks like. So we bought this, um, ended up trying to work something out with the borrower. Uh, she really was, was, uh, communicative, but kind of playing us and, and putting us off and saying, Oh, I got to go on vacation for a couple of weeks. You know, I can't, I'll talk to you after that. And it's like, okay. okay. She owes um, you 20. She's got two years of back payments, but wants to yeah. go on vacation. Gotcha. Right. Okay. So, um, well, fast forward, we initiate foreclosure. Um, you know, I'm working with my Florida attorney down there, Aaron Quinn. She's great. Um, we start the foreclosure process because we just weren't getting anywhere. We'd be more than happy to work something out with her, but you know, that's that you, you can't control borrowers. It's kind of like, like parenting, you can do your best, uh, but to, to uh, encourage good behavior, but it's impossible to control the borrower. So another reason I like note investing is you normally have multiple exit strategies. Um, you're not backed into a corner as a lender, at least not at that point. And so we were very close to foreclosing on this property. And then once she realized this was actually gonna happen, she actually signed over the property to us via deed in lieu. So it's a discussion for another day, but that's where she deeds the property, the borrower deeds the property over to us, the lender in lieu of us foreclosing. So why would someone want to do that? So why she would do that is foreclosure is not good for her credit history. We also ended up forgiving about $25,000 all said and done. She, walked away with, with that being forgiven, that amount of debt being forgiven. Um, and that's really, those are the two primary reasons on, on, on top of that, she actually was not living in the property and she was renting it out. So <laughs> side note, she was, she was making income from this property and then not, not paying her mortgage, but the returns um, are great on that. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to find that kind of deal. Um, but she walked away because she ended up getting, tens of thousands of dollars in debt forgiven and because she doesn't have to deal with a foreclosure on her record and it's just cleaner for both parties. 
So I want to, I, I kind of want to explore that for a second, because I've done something similar called cash for keys on some of my rentals before, where as opposed to going through the eviction process with mm-hmm. a tenant, I have given them money to move out of the property instead. Yeah. Some people are confused why we would do that. Can you maybe shed some light on why you would forgive $25,000 <laughs> worth of well, uh, back pay on that? I mean, for one, it's time value of money. I have money wrapped up in this deal and I need to make it profitable. You're right. I need to get that money working for me somehow. So if I just keep delaying and hanging out and, and trying to reach for, you know, every nickel, it's not going to be profitable, but in my mind, a deed in lieu and cash for keys, I know you're talking about a rental where you're not, you're not giving the deed over, you're not deeding the property over, but we, we do the same thing, cash for keys. It, it, and so it really is the same thing. I mean, our deed in lieu was a, was cash for keys and it was cash for deed, if you will. Um, so, you know, we forgave that amount because it was the, the right business decision to make. Um, yeah. So I want to back up now because uh, for, for our listeners listening to the story, so you bought this for 46, yes. you essentially forgave $25,000 worth of debt. So now essentially you're in it for roughly around 70 to 75 on a property that is worth, what was, what was the ARV at this point? Well, so I would say we, we were in it for probably a little in the low fifties with the 46, we paid for it, attorney's fees yep. and that kind of thing. Um, at that point we were in it, we'll say 52,000 and the property was, I, it's always less valuable than you think, but, um, the property was worth over a hundred thousand at that point. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a killer deal that I would buy all day long. Yeah. It, not even depending on what's wrong with the property. Cause I know I can go fix a property for less than 40,000 and still which have is, some equity tapped into it. So which is what we did. <laughs> I, I, I just want to double down on that point for a second for our listeners on, well, why would Jamie allow this woman to not pay her back payments? It's because Jamie's in it for $52,000 and has $50,000 worth of equity sitting there. It's yes. better just to get rid of the problem and own the property from there forward. So right. another real key reason why I love the note space is because big banks cannot be flexible with borrowers. Right. And they just have to turn a profit. And if you're an individual investor, you can go in and be very, very flexible on your deals and make sure that you're getting the returns you want. Yes. I mean, and, you know, to be clear, you can, you can lose money that way. So if you're not careful there, you know, um, and it, frankly, it's gotten a little bit harder to find deals just like it has in the real estate investing space, the rental space, but yes, I mean, they can be very profitable. And this, this example, this case study kind of does walk you, there are a lot of different moving parts, a different, a lot of different strategies that we were able to employ. Um, so we did rehab the property from a distance, which is, you know, I'm proud of that. I've never actually, I've never been to Jacksonville. <laughs> um, and so now it's rented out and, and we, we're about to collect our third full rent payment. It's um, so at this point, it's somewhat smooth sailing. We've got a quality property management company down there. That's, that's on the ball. And um, it's, it's been a good, been a good deal for sure. So we, did some things wrong that we we've adjusted, but it's, that was a, that was a good deal. Yeah. You mentioned you can lose money on uh, allowing cash for keys or D and loot and things like that. I like to say you never lose money in real estate. You just haven't held it long enough. 
because I believe <laughs> all real estate, if you hold it long enough, is profitable. Yeah. You just got to keep holding it. Yeah. So True. I, I want to switch gears. I, I mean, that's a ton of information and a lot of different mm-hmm. uh, rabbit trails that I'd love to explore with you at a different time. But yeah. This concept of infinite banking. So we got connected with Russ and Joey over at mm-hmm. the, the guys with the Wealth Without Wall Street podcast. And for those of you listening, fantastic resource. They do a tremendous job exploring all different levels of financing and ways to make money beyond Wall Street, meaning beyond stocks and bonds, like through real estate and things like that. But um, we've had several conversations about IBC. Can you give our listeners just a high level? What is, if I was introducing IBC to somebody, what is it? How would I explain it? So IBC, infinite banking concept, was uh, created by Nelson Nash. And it is a, a, it's kind of a philosophy. Um, It's a really big picture way of looking, of taking control of your own banking system as a person, as a family, you know, and uh, it's bigger than just, uh, we certainly can't go, you know, explain the whole thing here in, in five minutes, but it, it is a really powerful way of taking control of your, your own banking, your own cash flows, taking that back from the big banks um, and, uh, and, and, and Wall Street, frankly. So they're all kind of tied together. So, um, yeah. and the, the tool that's used most often with infinite banking is, is a, dividend paying whole life insurance policy. So that is people kind of equate the two infinite banking and whole life policies. It's not the same thing. One is used IBC is bigger than that, but, and you can go just like note investing, you can go in down all kinds of rabbit holes with this. Um, I am not nearly as, you know, into IBC is really powerful. Don't get me wrong, but like Russ and Joey, I mean, that's they, some, some of these people use infinite banking to buy their groceries and that kind of thing. Um, we're, we're not nearly that far down the rabbit hole, but the basic concept of IBC is you're taking a whole life, high cash value life insurance policy. So for example, I have one on myself. I have one on my wife. I have two of my kids. Um, and you're taking that that life insurance policy that has a high cash value, slightly lower death benefit. And you're using that policy as collateral, just like we talked about secured debt versus unsecured debt. This is secured debt, right? Because the cash value in the policy is what's the collateral for the loan. So I can go take out this policy and then take a loan from the insurance company immediately. I mean, I'll have my money within two to three days, take that loan, And go go do whatever I want with it. So that was kind of a roundabout way of getting there, but that's that's the basic concept. If you're you're taking a high cash value life insurance policy and borrowing against it, and taking those funds uh, and really doing what you want with them, I, uh, you know that's that's up to you. Now you do need to be disciplined, or you can get yourself in, into some trouble. But that's the that basic concept of of IBC and how it's used. Yeah, I would encourage everyone to go read Nelson Nash's book, Becoming Your Own Banker. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to say that we're, I'm here to help people explore different paths in real estate. That doesn't mean it's the only path, the best path, or the path. It means it's a path. Yep. And by doing that, I hope that people will get their mind expanded and can start thinking about things more creatively. 
And I'll be honest, even as if I, I love numbers, I like finance. I'm just kind of one of those geeks. <laughs> I had to read Nelson's book about three times to truly yeah. grasp the power of it. Yeah. But once I did earlier this year, I saw my net worth start exploding because I was using, I was leveraging money in a different way. And um, yeah. the key to IBC that I think most people miss out on is it's not the best interest rate out there compared to what we're seeing in historically low mortgage rates, but it's the flexibility of it. Yes. So I, yesterday, last night at 4.30 p.m., texted my financial guy and said, I want to take out a loan for $9,500. I think you know where this is going. <laughs> and this morning it showed up. So I'm going to borrow money for 5% and put it in an investment for 10% without having to send a bank any kind of documentation, asset sheets, three months of banking, two years of tax returns and all that kind of stuff. And it just starts giving me a little bit more flexibility in doing real estate deals. So yeah. I just wanted to introduce that concept because I know that's something we have in common. Yeah, uh, for just... everybody listening, there's there's a lot better resources than Jamie and I to delve into that topic, but it's extremely impactful once people really grasp their mind around it. For sure. And I just wanted to piggyback on that real quickly. I I'd looked it up years ago, a few years ago, IBC, and I read about it. And unfortunately, just like a lot of things, especially nowadays online, it's it's really controversial. And it's like, you know, you have these, you either love it or you hate it. I don't understand that, to be honest with you. Like, I don't understand why someone can't use IBC as a tool and maybe not, you know, worship Nelson Nash. But <laughs> it's it's like you said, it's it's a tool that's that's out there for you. But it also doesn't need to be, you know, I don't know, looked at as 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 the devil. So I, I just <laughs> I don't know why it can't be people can't be open minded and and learn about it and and use it if it works for them. So like you, it did it did take me a little while to wrap my head around it. And then it was earlier, it was last year where I, I it clicked. It was a couple months where I was working with Joey and it, and it, it really clicked. I'm like, okay, this is, this is another way to fund a business or an investment or something else over here on the one side while the policy, and this is, this is a key point and this has to do with how the policy is structured. So that's really important. Not all whole life policies will work for this, but the policy itself, continues to grow in in its value that's different than almost any other tool out there that you can borrow against so 401k you know the, those loans don't work like that so that's that was a big light bulb moment for me i'm like wait a minute this continue this just keeps growing no matter no matter what i do over here on the other side so and then you can put the money back and, and it's not the worst thing in the world to have even by itself if you're not borrowing against it um, especially in these turbulent times. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're saying there, I would summarize that as uninterrupted consistency is the key to success in life. Even Rudy, who was 5'3", 125 pounds through sheer grit and effort and showing up every day, got to play football at the University of Notre Dame uh, because of his effort and consistency every day. And what you find is the second point, compounding. You don't want to disrupt compounding and that's the beauty behind it all. So again, a topic that I'd love to kind of bring you back and explore further and just listen to two people who know enough to sound really smart to their grandma and really stupid <laughs> to people that know a lot about it, but it's a super interesting topic. Um, switching into the last section of our show here, I've got the same five questions that I ask everyone. I'll start off with what is your favorite book? So I'm going to say the one thing. Um, 
by Gary Keller and Jay Papazan. I, I do need to reread it, but it was really impactful for me. Um, talks about focus and the domino effect. I think in today's world, especially with people working from home and so many different things coming at you, it's real easy to fall in the, the trap of you know the shiny object syndrome where you're just chasing everything that comes across your plate. And th this book really spells out how uh, impactful focusing on one thing really can be for your success. So hundred percent. I, I don't want us to both have a man crush on Brandon Turner today, but he talks about <laughs> that's the book he's he read like a hundred times. And it's yes. funny. I, I read that book in late January this year, right? Before okay. All of okay. Went down with COVID and everything. Nice. And I wrote down like, here are the three things I want to do every single day. And I know if I do those things every single day, then five, 10, 15 years from now, I'll just have this unexpected growth curve. And that's essentially the, the genesis of the book. And I agree with you. I'd encourage everybody to go read that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, on that point, I like to believe that you are a steward of your habits and the things <laughs> that you do daily make you who you are and who you want to be. What's something that you do every day? So I do work out basically every day, not, not seven days a week, but I do try to be active and do some kind of fitness routine. Uh, I'm not, I'm not throwing weights around as much as I used to, but I do work out essentially every day. And then I'm, I'm working on my note business every day as well. So um, those are the two things that I'd say I'm pretty consistent with. Do you have a time every day you work out? I don't, I I'm not, well, especially this has been such an odd year, but um, it's normally in the afternoon. I know a lot yeah. of people, yeah, I, I'm not your 4am. I mean, I'll, I'll get up early, but, um, you know, I don't pretend like I'm a 4am ice bath, you know, meditation, morning routines are very powerful. I'm not knocking it, but, um, I end up working out in the afternoon typically. So, yeah. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? So I would say, I, I, there's so much good advice out there, but I would say be a part of something bigger than yourself and see where you can add value. So um, I, athletics were always a, a huge part of my, my uh, upbringing and my uh, younger life, I guess. So I was always a part of a team. And then, um, you know, and then I joined the military where I was part of something bigger as well. So see where you can add value and serve. Um, it, it's not all about you. Yeah. Love it. And something that needs to be said over and over again, I feel like in 2020, yeah. uh, what's the, what's the thing that you're most proud of in your life? So I would say my military service. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely proud of being a, uh, I'm the oldest sibling of seven. So I'm proud of being a, you know, trying to be the best role model I can be to my siblings and my, my immediate family as well, but also my military service. I know I gave you two answers, but um, military wasn't really, it's not like a, you know, not too many people in my family have joined the military and I wanted to do something that I thought was uh, meaningful and had purpose. And so, and so served in Iraq for a year and um, I'm definitely proud of that, that service. Yeah. Well, we all appreciate that. Uh, last thing, if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, who would it be and why? So I was joking because you did send me the questions earlier, let's be honest. And I was joking with my wife that I, I need to say her because she's the ice cream guru in the family. And um, I mean, I, I said vanilla, so <laughs> no, but uh, I, I'm going to say this might surprise 
surprise people I don't know, but I'm actually going to say my real answer is, is George W. Bush. Um, I don't want to get political on the show. It's not about that. But, um, you know, I, I, he seems like he's, not, he's a fun guy to, to hang out with. He always had a nickname for people. And I'm curious if, you know, if I would get labeled something. But um, I, I know he was controversial and, you know, the whole Iraq thing may have, may have been a, may have been a mistake. Um, but I think with the information he had at the time, this was, he made some critical decisions and stuck to his guns and was a true professional. And also just as a person, he seems like a fun guy. So um, I'd like to have a bowl of ice cream with him. Yeah. Look, I mean, tough position to be in, right? I, I, sure. I think anybody that's in those roles is going to get criticized for good, bad, different, whatever. And I, I would say looking back on those years, you never really saw him angry either, right? No. There's a lot of anger in politics today and you never really saw him angry and you saw him happy. And the yeah. thing I think I respect most about W is the way he transitioned yes. and how his and Michelle's relationship seems very special. And look, it takes a, you don't have to agree with him. You just takes a big person to look at your rival in the face and be like, we differ, but it's going to be okay because we're the same and we're both. American. Yeah. And I, and I think that gets back to putting something being a part of something that's bigger than yourself. He was a leader. Uh, again, I don't agree with everything he did. That's fine. But he was putting the country ahead of himself and his, ahead of his own ego. Um, yeah. So I think he was a true professional. And, and yeah, I agree with everything you just said. And I hope as we all go into 2021, we remember like the enemy is not your fellow American. The yeah, enemy is not us. We may yeah. differ on how we approach things. I might want to do single family and you might want to do notes. That doesn't make you. <laughs> so I, no. I hope everybody listens to this and understands that we're not endorsing one party or another. No. Thing. Just I'm understand not doing that people that. think different and yep. we're all Americans. Exactly. Uh, so Jamie, thank you for your time. Super impactful. I want to delve deeper into notes because you left open some rabbit trails that I decided <laughs> not to go down, but I'd love to explore with you at some other point. But if people wanted to find more about you, where could they go find and learn more about you and what you're doing? Labradorlending.com. So uh, L-A-B-R-A-D-O-R lending.com. And we, I have a education slash blog. It started out more as a blog, but it's kind of transitioned into more of an education uh, site. And so I do think there are a lot of, they're all free. I'm not selling anything on there at all. Um, there's, specifically about notes. We do have some stuff about uh, single family rentals and, and things of that nature, but it's mostly about notes, note investing. I actually put one out today that was about IBC, how you can use IBC to fund your, your note investing career, but it could be your rentals. It doesn't matter. Um, so a lot of good free uh, information at our website there. You can also email me at batemanjames at labradorlending.com. Um, so I'm also a co-host now on the Good Deeds Note Investing podcast, which uh, normally comes out every Friday. We just had a special episode coming out today. Uh, Chris Seveny, who's uh, been essentially a mentor and a fellow investor for me in the last couple of years, he has had this podcast uh, for several years and it's probably, I think it is the most popular note investing podcast. Um, I'll have to admit that started before I joined, but um, so we have a, that podcast, which is, we really try to add value. It's the good deeds, note investing podcast. 
Awesome. So labradorlending.com and the Good Deeds podcast. Jamie, thank you so much for your information, your words of wisdom, and I look forward to having you back sometime. Thanks, Matt. Had a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.